Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. On Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, Hong Kong police arrested more than 50 people in dawn raids on democracy activists. The arrests were linked to an unprecedented, independently organized, and non-binding vote to select opposition candidates for Hong Kong's legislative election, which authorities said was part of a plan to, quote, overthrow the government. These arrests came almost two years after protests began in Hong Kong, originally sparked by a bill that would have allowed extradition from Hong Kong to China. Though the protests were massive and enjoyed widespread support in Hong Kong, they've petered out, and now these mass arrests in January put a Hong Kong's future and democracy in question. To learn more, today I'm talking to two Prio researchers who followed Hong Kong closely in their work. Marianne Nadal is a senior researcher at Prio and deputy editor for the Journal of Peace Research. Her research interests include civil war theory and post-conflict stability, with much of her current work focusing on mass movements, protests, and democratization. Hokon Yarlov is a senior researcher at Prio, where he's currently researching education and displacement, as well as COVID-19 in the Middle East North Africa region. He's also researched and written on democratization, autocracies, and mass movements. Welcome, Hokon and Marianna. We're going to talk about Hong Kong today. I think that this topic really got lost in uh, in the other events that happened on January 6th. We've already had one podcast episode about um, the madness that was occurring in the U.S. with the insurrection, but on the same day, there were mass arrests in uh, Hong Kong uh, directly linked to the protest movement that's been happening for the last couple of years. And I think it's really important to also know about the background before we dive into what's been developing there. So, Mariana, can you talk a little bit about um, what's been occurring in in Hong Kong the last couple of years in terms of the mass movement there? And how did this all start? Okay, so that's a pretty huge uh, question, Indigo, but I'll try to keep (laughs) it uh, short and uh, informative. So, back in 2019, there were a lot large protests in Hong Kong. So probably the biggest protest they have ever seen with estimates running as high as 2 million people taking to the streets. So that's huge in the country of 7.5 million inhabitants. So what happened is uh, Hong Kong or Beijing were trying to impose the extradition bill. So uh, just to talk briefly about that, the, uh, the way this came about was that uh, there was this couple from Hong Kong who went traveling to Taiwan where he kills her. So he goes back to Hong Kong alone. And then one month later, he admits that he has killed her. But this proposes a problem uh, beyond him actually having killed her. And it's uh, that the Hong Kongese government cannot punish him because this didn't happen in Hong Kong. Also, they do not have an extradition bill with Taiwan. So they cannot send him to Taiwan for punishment. So due to this, the way the Hong Kongese government tries to fix this is that they propose an extradition bill with Taiwan. But some way, mainline China is included into this bill. And this means that people from Hong Kong can be sent to China for punishment. And this is a huge game changer in agreement 
in this one country, two system agreement that had been going on so far. So people take to the, like, they're obviously very, very upset about this. And they take to the streets and they're protesting. Um, and I think when it comes to the extradition bill, that one is withdrawn for quite some time. But there's all these things happening. And it ends up in the uh, Beijing last summer uh, imposing the uh, national security law which definitely changes thing for Hong Kong. So when Hong Kong was handed to China in 1997, they had this agreement. So it was going to be one country, but two systems. And Hong Kong was going to enjoy democratic uh, freedoms, like freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, uh, the freedom to vote, uh, which are very non-existent in China. So despite them being two countries, Hong Kong was going to be far more democratic than China, and they were going to enjoy a large extent of autonomy. And uh, it seems like China is not upholding their part of the deal. Okay, so it features several things, so including secession and subversion. So anyone believed to be a challenge to uh, the power of authority of the central government can be can fall under this national security law. Beijing establishes a new security office in Hong Kong with its own law enforcement uh, personnel. And it's up to Beijing how they want to interpret the law. And the office can send a limited set of cases to China, which is basically a limited version of the extradition bill. So all these freedoms that Hong Kong used to, to have are now being risked through this national security law. And this is what China used when then they went to arrest as many as 56 people, including leading opposition members, as well as people who are much less known. Um, so what exactly were the charges uh, against these opposition leaders and, and other um, protesters who were arrested? Yeah, the uh, these opposition leaders, so the... the uh... Uh, what do you call it? The format or the 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 reason for why they they started to arrest them was that they engaged in a primary polling, right? So they had unofficial primaries for the upcoming uh, legislative council elections. It should be said that these are elections that have been uh, postponed. It was allegedly due to COVID, but it's obviously because of the uh, political situation. Uh, Carrie Lam, the executive, uh, uh, the boss of Hong Kong, she. Uh, she uh, she postponed the election for a year, right? So that's uh, one of the many anti-democratic uh, things that have uh, they've done in the past uh, couple of years. And it was in this upcoming postponed election, which is supposed to take place in September uh, this year, uh, that they started to have primary uh, um, primary polls in favor of the what's called the pro-democracy camp in in Hong Kong politics, right? And uh, under this new national security law. Uh, this, because the national security law, this is very typically Chinese uh, legal system. It's very arbitrary. It's difficult to understand exactly what it says. It's, uh, it, it, the, as Mariana says, it's a lot of interpretation in it. So this is now interpreted as going against the core values of and goals of Hong Kong, and thus you can start uh, arresting all of these people. So I'm afraid I kind of already know the answer to this, but... Uh... 
can we consider the the 2019 to 2020 protests in Hong Kong successful? No, unfortunately. <laughs> no. All right. No. no, at least not now. There must become uh, something else must come for this to succeed. But uh, at the moment, no. I, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we started laughing when we said no, because it's it, mostly because it's an obvious answer that the the protest failed. But I, I just want to underscore what the tragedy this is, right? The China has killed the democracy in Hong Kong for the foreseeable future. And uh, yeah, I would encourage the listeners to go in and, and find some of the videos of the Hong Kong people singing their new unofficial national anthem, Glory to Hong Kong, to just see what a wonderful... Uh, country that china has just destroyed Mm. absolutely so one of the things that we talked about before we started recording was that this this protest movement was different in a lot of ways from other mass movements that we've seen in the last couple of years and and there have been some really major ones um but there are two major differences one is that they're demands uh, were one of their demands was for the police force um, to be reviewed and for the police brutality to be reckoned with. Um, So in that sense, they weren't trying to get the security apparatus on their side, which is a a common tactic for mass movements. The other, uh, which is perhaps becoming more popular, is that they wanted to be like water. That was their slogan. So they it was very decentralized and the two of you uh, co-wrote a blog post along with Bintu Zahara Sokor and Tuara Sogod at Prio uh, called The Rise and Fall of the Twitter Revolution, where you talked about this this use of Twitter, which I find really interesting. But as we just established, um, unfortunately, this wasn't successful. So I, I'm just wondering, does that mean that these kind of decentralized... Um, tactics don't work i mean after all people did get arrested in the end anyway so perhaps in a sense there were de facto leaders that that could be targeted all right yeah i'll 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 start with two two uh two points on this okay so uh first um we know this is a book by um uh, 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 about uh, internet and authoritarian governance which is a recommended reading on this question more broadly about uh, digital uh, technology and and governance and autocracy. And uh, the results are quite depressing. If anything, digital technology is playing into the hands of autocrats. And they are, even though we have seen these huge protest movements being able to organize through these different uh, platforms, uh, there's... This, this, the possibility for to monitor and survey, survey the population and thus target individuals and identify individuals through these digital platforms, the the end result is uh, is in favor of the, the autocratic leaders. It seems like that's the that's their conclusion for the most part. Now, second about the um, uh, the the successfulness of of the protests in Hong Kong. There's a very it's. A, the Hong Kong situation is very unique, right? So in, in a typical, like in the in the Arab Spring protests or, or similar situations, there's a people who is protesting against their national authorities, right? But the situation in Hong Kong is kind of different because there's, there is, of course, the, the Hong Kong uh, executive branch, which they could target, but they're really fighting a battle against Beijing, right? And Beijing is a totally different place and the elites in Beijing, in Beijing are not 
as dependent on this popular support or or these different elites in Hong Kong as national leaders usually are, right? So there are many ways that protests can work. And one of them, I mean, the most the most common way that, that regimes fall is through some kind of intra-elite competition, right? So somehow protests would kind of create, maybe some of, some of the elites see their opportunity to use the protests to win certain uh, uh, powers or somehow utilize the chaos in some way. But the protest in Hong Kong doesn't really produce this chaos for, for the Beijing elites, right? Which makes the situation very unique. It kind of resembles, uh, it almost resembles like anti-colonial uh, like independence movements more than, more than uh, a typical uh, democratic protest uh, uh, movement. So can I add one more thing to that? So uh, Erica Chenoweth has this saying that if you are able to get 5% of the population to the streets, the movement is going to succeed. So Hong Kong actually got 30% of its population in this 2 million protests to the street. And yet it did not succeed. But that's 30% is the percentage of Hong Kong. But as Hong Kong say, they're not fighting Hong Kong. They are fighting China, which is a massive power. So, uh, and that makes things very, very different. Uh, so back to, okay, so I'll first take one step back to your point about the security apparatus. We do know that there are two things that makes movement more likely to succeed, and that is number. You have to get a lot of people to the streets. And if you get the security apparatus on your side, you are much, the movement is much more likely to succeed. So I think Eric and Chenoweth find an effect that if you have security apparatus with you, you are 48 times as likely to succeed. So that's a lot. Uh, but uh, this movement, they are targeting the security apparatus in instead of trying to get them on the side, which is understandable, but still interesting. And you can see some of the same in the Black Lives movements, uh, Black Lives Matter movement in the US. So it's not like they're only the only ones targeting the police. But we do see that movements that target the police instead of trying to win them over by offering them flowers, having slogans like, brother soldier, you're, um, the army is part of the nation and all of that, are more likely to last for a longer time. And it's probably much harder for them to succeed. But there is some hope here because this is not the first movement that try to uh, that are targeting a superpower like China. So if you think about the Baltic states at the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, they were targeting the Soviet Union, which was also this big autocratic power with a huge military force. And they succeeded. And I'm sure they wouldn't have succeeded if it hadn't been for all of the chaos unravel uh, unraveling with, on the inside of the Soviet Union. So probably for Hong Kong to succeed, something must happen in China as well. As long as China has the grip on people in China, as they have, this is going to be very, very difficult. But who would have known about what happened in the Soviet Union just a few years before? Like, these things are non-linear. They happen, like, in very short uh, time, they happen and they're unpredictable. So I don't think this is the end of Hong Kong. I'll 
give the word to Hong Kong. Yes, absolutely. And these protests have had a lot. So all of these dynamics have taken place in Hong Kong as well, right? As my almost said, it starts out with this extradition bill that just gets a lot of people into the streets. But from there, the snowball starts running. And uh, and the I mean, when, when in May in 2019, when the when these protests started, the police in Hong Kong uh, enjoyed quite a lot of uh, legitimacy. The people trusted them, right? Half of the people said they had no problem with the uh, with the police and trusted them totally. Over the course of the summer, it's like two months. The trust in the police has totally deteriorated, right? Nobody, uh, everyone suddenly distrusts the police. And this is just one of the ways that these protests updates everyone's beliefs about the world and what they think about their government, right? So over the course of two months, they've seen the police become really violent. They realize that they're they're living in a different place than they thought they were living, right? They, they, the government doesn't really support them. The government seemed to hate them. And uh, and these type of these type of snowballs, that's what makes this so difficult to predict. As, as Mariana says, it really needs to be that type of snow, snowballs that also starts running somehow inside of the Communist Party or or in, in mainland China. We know that there's a lot of protests in mainland China as well, but China is able to contain these to to be regional or or stuff like that, right? Mm. Uh, and of course, at the moment, they're enjoying a massive economic growth, which helps them uh, helps them to to gain the support they need uh, and and avoid these things from from uh, from unraveling out of their power uh, out of their mm. it also reminds me of another recent mass movement uh, in Chile where it started with something kind of innocuous with the raising of the the price of subway ticket and then that that it got revoked but it was too late and and the protests just got bigger and bigger because um like you say, people saw that maybe the government and security wasn't on their side. Uh, but I'm wondering, and because Mariana, you said you think there's there's still hope that something can change in Hong Kong. But do you think that it's going to take another spark like this? Or do you think that now people see that something does need to change? It, and now we're more at like a, maybe a, a simmer, we could call it, and things will will pick up again. So it's hard to see how anything is going to change in the in the coming in the shortcoming future, and and it's understandable. So uh, that people are, so people are not taking to the streets uh, anymore, or at least not to a large extent. Like these are extreme threats to their lives, and uh, it's understandable that a lot of people now are taking at least a pause from the battle. So uh, the so Hawkon uh, mentioned this uh, pro democracy camp within the Legislative Council. So Demosisto was one of like the like the truly pro democracy parties within there, and it started quite recently in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, I was led by um, and had a one one seat then back in two thousand and sixteen by Nathan Law. But with the National Security Bill, Nathan Law. Uh, es- escaped from Hong Kong. Like he, it wasn't uh, safe anymore at all, which is understandable. And the the party um, denounced. So it says something about the huge impact these new laws have on Hong Kong. But sometimes people. So Hong Kong has been extremely creative this whole be water strategy where they use all technology to to escape 
the security apparatus in China was quite successful uh, in the short run. So maybe it just takes some time to figure out how to deal with a new threat and the extreme presence now by China. And uh, the, I mean, the uh, just to follow up on this, the uh, the 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 kind of uh, deep roots of this pro-democracy, almost the independent movement for Hong Kong, uh, re- really has uh, settled uh, in the population, right? So it, it, individuals like Jimmy Lai and uh, Martin Lee, these are these are old activists, pro-democracy activists that saw the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, and who really uh, uh, started to work for democracy after this right and in hong kong today uh, there is there's a huge majority of them that identifies as hong kong not as uh, uh, chinese or mixed or anything and especially among the youth under for the people under the age of uh, 40 there's more than 60 percent of them just identify as hong kong right so this national identity now in addition with uh, the UK opening their borders for these uh, Hong Kong, so they're they're now admitting asylums to anyone from Hong Kong. And they basically said that there's like 5 million people that could get a visa. So you'll get this huge diaspora of uh, Hong Kong pro-democracy supporters outside of Hong Kong borders that China can't really prosecute. And uh, so there will be a, a large, or there will be a lot of people that have, that have taken part in this and have really uh, felt this that will keep working for the uh, for democratic hong kong and this resembles like uh, this really resembles independence movements from from the 19th century i mean latin america the different independence uh, movements there had diaspora in europe greece we have these examples for how for how these uh, identities can survive for a long time and china is going to have to struggle with that for many decades to come. Mm. And Hokon, well, and Mariana, but Hokon, you you met uh, some of the protesters. Um, can you just briefly tell me a little bit about that? Uh, what was that like and what did you discuss? What was the context of that? Well, the, um, I met uh, especially uh, one of them is, uh, so Lester is uh, Lester Shum, he's now been arrested in January. Uh, and the other one, Ted Hui, he's now given a, a, a asylum in, in Denmark. Uh, so we met them, they were on a, they were basically on a tour, right, in Europe to, to garner support for the cause. And um, I remember feeling really powerless because they were desperate and uh, I had no idea what to do. I know that, in, I mean, the Norwegian government is taking a very defensive stance in this, and uh, I'm, I was really unsure what to do. But what they what they wanted they they wanted a quite um, confrontational. They wanted Europe to be confrontational with China, right? Um, talking about different embargoes, asset is um, cease assets, uh, uh, stuff like this. Um, they also didn't want Europe to, like this this EU investment treaty that was just signed, they wanted Europe to cancel all of these kind of plans. Um, so this was, uh, this was much more about, or this, this uh, uh, ultimately plays into like international security and, and, uh, uh, and, and China's role in the world and international relations between Europe, the US, uh, China, 
Uh, this involves, of course, Japan. Taiwan is shaking uh, when they see this going on in Hong Kong, right? Uh, so, so they were very attentive to to kind of the global implications of this, and obviously, since they were there to kind of garner support from Europe. Um, but it was really, I mean, it's it's really, uh, I mean, it's emotional to meet people who really fights for democracy and they're losing and they're on this desperate tour to garner support. I, I, it was heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's uh, such a courage. And the, um, uh, just to add, uh, I think the current crisis going on around the globe has uh, definitely given China some opportunities. So uh, we've all been focusing on a lot of different things than what is going on in China, including the powers that used to uh, shout out and maybe sanction China. So I do hope when the world finds itself in a little bit of a better place that we're not just going to accept the change that happened in Hong Kong over over the last year. And... Uh, and uh, we should be vocal. We should uh, not be okay about that. Because uh, as Fokan said, it's, um, this, was, this was a democracy, which it's hard to see that's going to survive if China continues the way that it is. I don't think, I think it's quite clear that China's plan is not that Hong Kong is going to continue as a democracy with uh, a large extent of autonomy. It's not going to uphold. It's part of the agreement from 1997. The agreement was going to last for 50 years. We haven't even reached the second half of that period. And it's clear that uh, Beijing is not going to wait, uh, but I do hope that uh, the world is going to react to that. I just want to add that the national security law is in practice also sidelining a lot of the legislative institutions in Hong Kong, right? So this is a law that also uh, enables uh, Beijing to introduce laws in Hong Kong. Uh, In a way, it's a back channel, right? But that's an instrument for Beijing to sideline the democratic institution totally in in Hong Kong, right? So the dismantling of the the democracy, uh, the legal institutions of the democracy in Hong Kong is also underway, right? And the the courts are very attentive that they are next. (laughs) Well, thank you both so much for for talking about this and putting it in a little bit more context. And um, hopefully we can have an update at some point um, if things change. So thank you both. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Music by Martin Rendemol. Special thanks this week to communications intern Simona Cecilo for background research and writing.